Hi, I'm Michael. I'm an investor, entrepreneur, pawn shop owner, improv artist, and as always, very, very neurotic. I'm also a TV host and your host for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It is a Dweebs Global production. That is why we do the podcast, dweebsglobal.org. You can go there for free mentorship, anything from resume writing to mental health, completely confidential, completely free, dweebsglobal.org. So I'm here today with James Mendez, Mendez Hodes. James is an award-winning that I, I, I messed it up and I said it was going to be easy before. <laughs> you psyched yourself out, man. I really did. I did. I yeah. made it a tongue twister that didn't exist. James <laughs> Mendez Hodes. Okay. James is an award-winning game writer, designer, and editor in both analog and digital games. He is also a cultural consultant, helping other creatives represent diverse and marginalized identities through authenticity and respect. I hope I said that right. I think so. Okay. Yeah, that's like the, that's the long way of saying that people hire me to tell them that they're racist. There you go. I bet you a lot of them don't mean to be. So, <laughs> they're very often they don't mean to be. If right? they did mean to be, it would be so much easier. I'd be like, stop meaning to be. And they'd be like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> but no. But you're also a practicing martial artist and you studied over a half dozen different disciplines. I had to yes. Yes. <laughs> so. I, I am. I am both proud and also not proud to to, to admit that whenever you hear someone say like, yes, I've done 12 different martial arts. I'm like, did they kick you out? Did you, <laughs> did you, you quit when it got hard? I, yeah. were you that bad at each one? Was it a, exactly. <laughs> can't do yeah. that one. So I'll try another. Yeah. Well, you, you ended up in, uh, I never say right. Capoeira, Capoeira, Capoeira. There you go. So if that's where you are now, you couldn't have been yeah. horrible at the stuff because that's one of yeah. the most entertaining, like yeah. eye-popping ones. Yeah, capoeira and also a uh, Japanese style called Bujinkan Budo Taijutsu. Um, we used to we used to refer to it as ninjutsu sometimes, but we've stopped since the rise of anime. I understand because okay. people, if you say, "Well, I do ninjutsu," people expect that like you can like fly and and disappear and turn into a log and stuff. Um, <laughs> Is that what happens in the anime? Is that a... uh, evidently, yeah. Um, but uh, it, it's a it's a Japanese battlefield style that is a, it's a single organization um, that teaches a number of different styles associated with both conventional and unconventional warfare. So there's some stuff that would be associated with what we might refer to today as a samurai. Um, others uh, might be associated with what we might refer to today as the kind of samurai called a ninja. Um, so it's a, it's a combination of battlefield espionage. There's even some like nautical stuff. Um, but, so it, uh, yeah, it sounds like it's mostly for, is it mostly for entertainment or is it like for actual battleground warfare? Uh, well, it depends. I mean, for me, uh, for me, it's my second scene, you know, this is, this is entirely a hobby. Um, right. I'm probably never going to be in a position where I have to fight for my life, um, to win, um right. like in a in a battlefield situation i'm a little i'm a little old to get into that um so i always say like a lot of people say martial arts is a way of life and i'm like yeah sure but like it started as a hobby for me and that's important because that's you know where i go to de-stress and relax and and not do work um but it does relate to my work in that i do a lot of uh, cultural consulting on like historical and religious and identity topics and i've found that very often my martial arts uh background uh, opens as many doors for me in that process as uh, like my academic background. I'd imagine um, with the diversity you have in it, it sounds like it would. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's actually, that's one of the reasons why I'm proud that I've done a lot of different styles because 
um, like for me, the most important element of martial arts isn't like whether I'm going to be the best fighter. Like we live in a world with like flying death robots and, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, career fighters who put their entire lives and money and training into that. Like, I don't, I don't need to be the best for, for me, the most important thing is like meeting people and connecting with other people. Um, gotcha. You have to talk to my son. My, my 11 year old son walks around at a soccer game. Some kid was bullying him and he was like, I'm a black belt in Taekwondo. So watch out. <laughs> but I'm like, you haven't done this since before COVID. You better stop threatening people. <laughs> if you don't do it all the time. It's not going to stick with you. <laughs> Zoom Taekwondo is difficult. It's, yeah. it's a challenge. Um, uh, so yeah, like uh, there's, there's lots of things about capoeira and about uh, Taijutsu, which are very combat relevant Um uh, uh, Taijutsu in particular has been uh, adapted uh, for use in the Marine Corps martial arts program. Um, so it's got some current uh, present day combat relevance, but um, for me, it's primarily about uh, connecting with other people. And I'm, I'm excited to fight people because I want to, you know, be their friend and learn about them. I'm not like, I don't need to defeat them to win. Right. And I'm guessing it's sparring. So there's no, you're not trying to make him bleed. You're just trying no, to no, get, ideally get to him not. First, right? get, get what to sometimes him first. happens, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, mostly, mostly you're trying to learn and you're trying to improve. You're trying to get better at fighting, but like the, the ultimate goal for me, it's, I'm not going to be a competitor. I'm not going to be a soldier on a battlefield. So like, for me, it's about like feeling good in my like connections with other people. Got you. Copa I can't say <laughs> capoeira. Okay, capoeira. Yeah, cap. It's it's a it's more of like a, a little bit of an ass sound, like a like cap, like you're wearing a cap right now. So capoeira. Capoeira. Yeah. Okay, that it almost that seems very much like entertainment. It almost seems like acrobatics in a lot of way. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, like the tactical approach of capoeira is. Um, uh, fighting in a way that doesn't look like fighting and doesn't look threatening um, because capoeira evolved from a, uh, it didn't evolve from a battlefield context. It evolved from a street context. Um, it was developed by um, an urban underclass of African and mixed race people uh, in Brazil based on older styles practiced by Europeans, uh, enslaved Africans and uh, American Indians. Um, so a combination of many different stylistic influences created it, um, but most of the people who were practicing it were um, uh, poor city folk. And the primary, uh, the primary danger, the primary threat that they faced was from the military police of Brazil, um, who, were, um, who were a deadly and well-organized force uh, in the times that Capoeira was growing up. So going back to the earlier thing about like winning fights, winning a fight against a police officer uh, in this context, if you lived on the streets of Sao Salvador de Bahia uh, in like uh, just before 1900, winning a fight against a police officer wasn't that wasn't like a victory condition because now you've just killed a cop. So if you were practicing like the world's most lethal martial art, you would die almost instantly uh, because you were so lethal. So the style focuses primarily on unbalancing, confusing, and misdirecting enemies. Um, it's, uh, you can use it to kill someone if you, you, know, you have a knife in your hand or you stick a blade in your shoe, as many old school capoeira players did. Um, but uh, murder was, was never the, the primary goal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, 
I, I did I hear that like you were saying that if you do it correctly, you can kill someone even without a weapon. You, I guess you can. Right. You can always no. kill someone without a weapon. Right, right, right. Um, it's it. always it's always technically possible, but it's not easy. And uh, generally speaking, for for most practitioners of a martial art in like an urban context as opposed to like a battlefield context. Um, it, and this is something that like every teacher should teach, but uh, is often forgotten. Yeah, being lethal is actually not super useful to most people and often is is exactly the opposite. I mean, setting aside the whole moral calculus of it. Right, um, right, right. So yeah, um, most, of, most of the capoeira techniques that I know um, are uh, used to unbalance, uh, to confuse, um, or to cause um, uh, an injury that limits mobility, but doesn't necessarily kill. Gotcha. Um, like the most, the most common serious injury, I would say that an unarmed capoeira technique might inflict, um, like you could get knocked out, you could get a concussion and any concussion could conceivably le be lethal. Um, but an injury to your knee or your ankle that prevents you from moving, uh, especially in the moment, but you know, possibly you might be laid up, uh, for a, for a long time. Um, those would be, I think the most common injuries that you would get. Um, and right. it's also the most tactically useful kind of injury to inflict um, for someone in that urban pre-1900 context. Gotcha. I, I watch a lot of mixed martial arts and that is often the injuries that people get because mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it, it's the leg kicks and, and yeah, and exactly. Disabling. Yeah. Yeah. We all, down. yeah, I saw that. Uh, I don't watch a huge amount of MMA, but I did watch the, um, the Conor McGregor uh ankle <laughs> leg injury that, that oh, was hard to watch that was a whole different yeah that's a whole different hurt if no one yeah. had, if people who didn't watch that his, his leg essentially broke in half mm -hmm. <laughs> and was hanging there yeah it was pretty disgusting yeah. um, that rarely happens though that yeah. that has only happened a few times that i've seen do you have a favorite um a favorite uh, martial arts that, you, that you've enjoyed over the years um uh, I really, I really like capoeira aesthetically. I think it it really appeals to me physically, and I like that um, it focuses on um, it focuses on a lot of social elements of combat. Mm -hmm. um, it teaches you um, not just how to hit someone, but when to hit someone um, in the rhythm of an interaction with them. Um, and there's a lot of emphasis put on sense of humor uh, in capoeira, which okay. is uh, both for fun and for tactical effectiveness, because the moment at which something is funny is often the moment at which it's unexpected, which means that it's a good time to strike somebody. Okay. Have you ever had to use anything in self-defense? Uh, in self-defense, not as much. I have intervened with, um, I've intervened in situations that looked like they were going to become dangerous where I saw someone, uh, threaten somebody else. Yeah. Um, and in those situations, uh, I've, a couple of times I've intervened or, uh, physically, um, in a way that diffused the situation. Um, but I like to think that I'm good at recognizing dangerous situations and exiting them. That's, um, that is, that is the best route. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to move on to the, uh, being the cultural consultant and I'm oh, going to, yeah. I'm, it's always a, a nervous subject for people that aren't involved in it or aren't thinking about mm -hmm. it every day because at times I don't, to me at least it feels too easy to step over yeah. the line or too easy to say the wrong thing yeah um, definitely um and even even for me like as a cultural consultant I, I always tell people all of the things that I'm telling you not to do most of them are mistakes I've made myself before mm -hmm. and uh most of the other things where I know them without having made that mistake it's because I was lucky enough to see somebody else do it Got you. How, yeah. how much of that, 
you know, a lot of times this comes down to, I don't know how into, into politics I want to get. A lot of it comes down to the left and the right. Uh, you know, the right saying the left is going too far with it, the, or the right is saying the left's going too far. The left is saying the right doesn't care at all. And um, mm-hmm. it's almost uh, a lot of times it's the, the two extremes. Yeah, that are making I the think that it's... And where does it where does it fall? You know, it's it's uh, I, I I try to I try to stay away from uh, using the language of politics too much. Mm-hmm. Um, Makes sense. Instead, I like to focus on the language of harm and joy. Okay. Um, so I like to focus my work on the experience of real people. If you make something, if you're making something and you share it with someone and they're experiencing it, what uh, at what point in this are they likely to feel bad about themselves? At what point is this thing that you're making that someone's playing or reading or whatever, at what point is it going to engender a situation where someone inadvertently makes someone else feel bad and suddenly you have, you, you have people fighting? And what opportunities do you have in your work to create something that's going to give someone joy, where they're going to see it and smile and feel really good and remember something about their own identity that feels validating, and then they'll go and tell somebody else how cool that thing that you made was. So those are those moments that I like to focus on. If you if you bring it back to real human experience, mm-hmm. then um, uh, I, I find that it's it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier to share those concepts. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, yeah. I think a lot of times people don't realize we we mentioned this at the beginning. They don't realize they're being offensive, or mm-hmm. they everything they know about uh, a certain type of people, American Indians, for instance, indigenous yeah. people they don't realize that what they've been told what they know that what they've seen is actually offensive and yeah and not the reality um so people make the mistake without even realizing they're making the mistake exactly lack of education yeah um so uh sometimes we sometimes that comes from what we call unconscious bias or implicit bias which is these um you know racist ideas and assumptions about other people that we are are all raised with because they just pervade society and the way we think and talk and especially the structures of power that we interact with so thoroughly. Um, And I think in polite society, you know, setting aside like hate crimes, right? Um, uh, In polite society, I think that these are some of the most common ways that we inadvertently hurt each other. Um, uh, Actually, not even just having to do with like identity topics, but um, very often, like a lot of the ways we most commonly make each other feel bad are completely accidental. Um, and I, I think uh, one of the mistakes you can make then is assuming that like, because you meant something by accident, or rather because you didn't mean something, um, then it isn't necessarily going to hurt someone. And I guess like bringing that, bringing that back to martial arts, you hit someone in the head um, and you intend to like knock them out and give them a concussion, but not kill them. Um, if you accidentally uh, give them a, you know, a subdermal hematoma, um, they're just as dead, even though, they, even though you didn't mean it. Right. Um, and the law is going to pay a lot more attention to the fact that uh, they're dead now than the fact that, well, you didn't necessarily mean it. So I think it's better for us, even when it's uncomfortable, um, to try to take a step further and take extra responsibility for the stuff that we do, right? I'd rather be, I want to be known for being too kind. I want to be known for um, to, for erring on the side of kindness. Mm-hmm. I got you. When I guess I get, I guess sometimes I get confused. I'm sure others do mm-hmm. as to where where the line is. Like I, I don't know. I've seen people wearing kimuras and that be uh-huh. taken as offensive because you're appropriating a different culture. Whereas 
you know, in college, I wear them all the time because they're just so comfortable right, to, right. to sleep. You know, um, so is that is so, that offensive? Like, is that so? I, I have a whole article about exactly this. It's on my website, jamesmendeshoods.com. Um, you can find an article called "How to Change Your Conversations About Cultural Appropriation," because. Um, uh, like you, like a lot of other people, I found that I was having the same conversation about cultural appropriation over and over and over. And like, it was just never ending. Right. Um, kind of like a, like a groundhog day situation. <laughs> Sorry, I've pulled you back into it. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. This is, this is, it is my job. Right. So, uh, so I wrote an article about um, not necessarily how to identify cultural appropriation. There's other articles already out there about that. Um, this article is how to stop having that same conversation over and over. Um, and one of the ways that you get out of it um, is you refuse to draw a line. Because this is always what comes up when people get in conversations about cultural appropriation. Uh, people want to say, well, where do I draw the line? And you want to, to come up with a rule, to come up with an idea that's going to apply across many different cases so that this problem with cultural appropriation is going to be your last one. And after that, you can just refer back to your line that you drew and everything's easy. Um, but the line ends up actually getting you in more trouble. Um, I think that it's more efficient um, to accept the fact that you're, to a certain extent, you're going to keep have to, having to have conversations about this and to look at each individual situation on its individual merits and its individual context. Um, because even something as simple as like eating, uh, eating ethnic food, right? Obviously, if you go to a Mexican restaurant, purchase Mexican food from a Mexican person and eat it, even if, even if you're not Mexican, um, then that, that's, that's probably fine. Um, but certain I politicians, hope, I, would hope, I would hope so. I would you'd hope, think like, so. probably wouldn't even be in there. Yeah. Right. But certain politicians can eat a taco bowl on Twitter and manage to turn it into an, uh, uh an intercultural incident. So you've got to look at the context in which your expression lives. Um, and when you're looking at that context, uh, some questions that I like to ask include, um, who has the power here? Uh, who's making money off of it? Um, was there consent? Um, like, uh, again, if you, um, if you purchase a kimono from someone um, and, then, uh, and then wear it, uh, you purchase a kimono from a Japanese person and then wear it, um, that's different than if you made a kimono yourself and put it on. Um, it still might be okay, but in one situation, um, there, was a, there was an act of consent that was involved um, and money changed hands and a person from the source culture profited from it. In the other situation, that didn't necessarily happen. It doesn't mean that you can never wear that kimono. And if you wear it to sleep, it's probably gonna be fine. Um, Presumably, the entire nation of Japan is not watching you sleep. Um, and if they did, you'd have a much more profitable YouTube channel, probably. But <laughs> you're gonna take notes those, on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, for for the rest of us, um, yeah, you also have to consider um, who's being affected by this. Like, who mm -hmm. is seeing this, and what is the experience of people who are directly interacting with you? I got you. I, um... Yeah, yeah still feels to... uncomfortable, right? You still got it, like a bit of that prickle. It totally does. It totally yeah. does. You know, because I've you know I have things where I've like I've always had a fantasy of opening a sushi restaurant. It's like my favorite food, mm -hmm. but it's almost like that the line I know the line's drawn there, and it's like because I'm American, born in America, like for some reason I don't have the right to do yeah. that. It's complicated. And then uh, another thing to consider is that um, at least in in my part of America, I live in I live in the Northeast, in the greater New York metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. um, I would say probably a majority of sushi restaurants are run by Asian people who aren't Japanese. 
Actually, you're, you're definitely right. I lived in New York, yeah. by the way, for 12 years. So yeah, oh. you're, you're very good. Yeah, that is very true. That is very yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. So there's um, there's all kinds of um, and, and these are the situations of cultural appropriation that are most interesting to me. Right. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know, we talk a lot about like wearing a headdress to, to Coachella. Like, obviously, that's terrible or. Um, you know, putting on yellow face for a movie. Like, yeah, we can probably assume that that it's fair to maybe draw that line. But right. um, for a, as for me as a cultural consultant, the most interesting situations are like the Wu-Tang Clan. Like, yeah, that's cultural appropriation of Asian culture by Black Americans, but also they're making really good music and lots of Asian Americans identify with it and really love it. Um, so it's situations like that um, where there's all kinds of thorny issues, where there are power gradients going in both directions, um, people who are capable of being racist to each other, um, that kind of thing. Those are the things that really fascinate me as a cultural consultant. That's like the most interesting part of the work for me. I feel like stereotypes and cultural... Uh, representation. Yeah, what, what to say? yeah, cultural reputation, they can kind of get mixed in with each other sometimes too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um Stereotypes are, are really interesting because like, uh, like looking at the Asian community, for example, like we have this model minority stereotype that, that all Asians are um, these like smart and high achieving and well-educated, um, but kind of socially, uh, uh, socially awkward or uh, like socially retiring kind of people. Um, and it's easy to forget that um, the, the Asian minority in the United States is like that specifically because of consciously constructed immigration policy. You know, if you think about it for a, for a moment, um, if, if Asian people couldn't be construction workers, then, you know, how would they build buildings in China and Japan and Korea? Um, you know, it, right. just a, a moment's thought uh, <laughs> banishes the idea that this must be a worldwide reality. Um, but in the United States, um, the, there's this stereotype, which is, of course, unfair to individual Asian Americans like, you know, myself who can't do math. Um, but that's also a consciously constructed thing um, that's a result of like a decision that someone in power made at some point that we're only going to allow um, or we're going to allow more Asians who are highly educated to immigrate. Right. So, uh, so the stereotype is both unfair to individuals and often untrue. And rooted in a truth which is the result of a conscious decision by someone in power right wow that's very interesting i had never yeah it's one of those things you never really crosses your mind yeah it's it's really complicated and like uh you know my own parents my my mom uh my mom was of the generation which prioritized uh, achievement in like western arts and sciences um, in like European manners and like the American way uh, to be an important part of survival. Um, so I was, I was raised with a lot of kind of assimilationist values that I've had to consciously deconstruct and decide whether I wanted to take or leave uh, later in my life once I started thinking about these things. Because, um, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I thought like, well, I, I'm surely I'm, I'm just the same as everybody else. All men are created equal. And uh, racism is over because cartoons are diverse. Um, and of course it was, it was never that, never that simple. Right. You did the common sense would say it should be. I mean, yeah. we are so diverse and you'd think that everyone would accept each other because we're all, yeah. we're all unique in different ways. So why yeah. are you judging somebody else for being unique in a, in another exactly. way? Exactly. Yeah. Um, what a, what a tricky subject and, yeah. uh, something that you, 
I mean, you're doing on a daily basis. I would be so stressed out. It's, uh, you know, one of the most important things that I learned was like, there's a feeling that you get when someone tells you you're wrong. And specifically, there's a feeling that you get when someone tells you that you're wrong in a culturally or like identity offensive way. Uh, Mm -hmm. And for me, it's like I get flushed and I get warm and uh, I I get like prickles all over my skin, maybe goosebumps. And I feel like a sort of like a tingling on on my scalp um, Mm -hmm. and around my neck. Um, and I had to, I had to learn to recognize that feeling because, uh, my first, uh, my, my first impulse is always to try to solve the problem right away while I'm still feeling that physical sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, I had to teach myself, you have to wait and accept that, that you're going to feel physically uncomfortable and let it pass through you before you respond smart that's smart in most situations not yeah, just not just this definitely one. yeah breathe um, it out uh, mm-hmm. really think about the response before you go yeah. with it yeah um, yeah and you know who's who's best at this like watching kids be wrong um because like a kid or a teenager they're constantly being told they're wrong all day through school by their parents and everything um so very often if like you know a 14 year old says something sexist around you and you're like hey man that was kind of sexist they'll be like oh yeah okay sorry and then they'll go on with their life with an adult. Like they would, the, the apology would just be starting the 20 minute apology. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. Um, do you think sometimes it does go too far though? And there's just the, it's just the, the people that are very loud that are, are just bringing it. it, it Cause when it, I think sometimes when it goes too far, it, it brings a bad name to it. It brings a bad, um, it makes it harder for people to understand when it is real when and and when it does need to be fixed and changed. So um, mm-hmm. so telling people who are allowed to be quieter, um, even if it is sometimes a good idea, uh, rarely works. <laughs> it's like if I'm upset and you tell me to calm down, when is telling someone to calm down ever worked? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, uh, I guess one way, um, if, if I feel like someone is being unproductively loud, let's say, um, what can I do to encourage them to encourage a different kind of behavior? Well, um, in cultural consulting, one thing that I, I tend to encourage is to end with action items. Um, so sometimes you just need to be upset about something and vent, right? Happens to all of us. You don't want to do anything about the problem. You just want to scream about it because screaming about it feels good. Um, and that's a great thing to do, although maybe not on Twitter. Um, but <laughs> hang out with your friends, go to the bar, go to your private chat, whatever. Um, uh, and then if, if I'm going to say something in public, then what I try to focus on is action items. Um, I try to focus on um, if I'm going to be loud about something, I want to be loud about things that people can change. And I want to be loud about suggesting things that people can do differently. Um, so that they can stop feeling bad about themselves and start making the situation better. When people quote unquote go too far, um, I mean, I try to look at that with sympathy. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a thing that people gotta go through and sometimes I, I wanna be loud also. Um, but then when that passes the same way that that like physical sensation that I talked about passes through you, um, the question is, what are you gonna do after? Um, what are you gonna do that's um, practically going to make the situation better? Um, so yeah, I guess I would get frustrated at someone if they're, if they're just loud. Um, but the thing that they're loud about isn't exactly actionable. If they never like 
push and take the next step. That's what I'm really looking for as a cultural consultant. Okay. Um, and uh, another another lesson that I learned a long, long time ago um, from the Jay Smooth video, how to tell someone they sound racist. It's like two and a half minutes long and it's the best video on, on the entire internet. Um, and my whole career is founded on this one video. Um, is again, how are we gonna be loud? Uh, we should focus not on who someone is, but on what they said and did. Because who someone is, that takes a long time to change. And um, if I tell someone, I think you are a racist, then they're gonna talk about how many black friends they have, all of the money that they donate to all these good causes. I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna be mired in that conversation for you know the next hour at least before anything happens. Mm -hmm. But if instead I focus on, hey, this thing that you said or did sounds kind of racist. Um, is there a way we can rephrase that? Is there a different way we can say that next time? So this is actionable feedback. These are the kinds of things that uh, people are actually going to be actually going to have the power to change. Um, and, and me personally, I, I think that changing what's within for me often starts with changing what's without. I have to start making those little external changes and stop seeming racist before I can necessarily stop being racist. I mean, as a cultural consultant, knowing what I know about how implicit and, implicit and unconscious bias work, I'm kind of going to assume that I'm always going to be racist. I was raised in a racist society. I'm always going to have that inside me. So my actionable feedback for myself, what I, what I can do for, for myself is um, I can change my words and actions. Um, it's kind of a fake it till you make it kind of approach. Yeah, no, it's very... It's something a lot of people would never admit or would never say mm -hmm. um, because we all want to come across or most of us want to come across as not racist at all, mm -hmm. but we're denying thoughts that are in our head that just naturally come up and you're like, that is not the right thought like that. Mm -hmm. Why is that even possibly there? Yeah, but it's but that's your, that's the way that your subconscious works. And like, mm -hmm. that's what's kept us alive for, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of years, the ability to make. Uh, snap judgments about situations that might be dangerous really, really quickly. Right. Um, and uh, again, in martial arts, the, you call that like the flinch reflex, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the part of your brain and your body that reacts and, and takes an action before, uh, before your conscious mind catches up. Mm -hmm. Got you. Yeah. Got you. It's a super interesting subject. And uh... Yeah, one that's sometimes difficult to talk about. So I, I appreciate you helping me get no, through no it. Problem. You know, the last thing I wanted, you know, no matter what's going on, you know, people have feelings, you know, mm -hmm. if they might say something that if they're getting offended by what you said, even though you don't think you've offended them, that is their feelings. That is, mm -hmm. that is how they feel. So like yeah. you said, the, an actionable approach afterwards to. Yeah. Um, and it's the thing I always try to remind people is that if someone calls you on something that you did if someone says that thing you said or did is offensive or like that hurt me or i think that might be taken the wrong way um as the person who's hearing that you have all the power in the situation to make it not awkward uh by responding in a relaxed and chill and compassionate way if you say oh i'm sorry i didn't realize that um let me change what i just said let me say it again or what can I do next time so that um, it doesn't hurt you? Right. Um, and if you can approach that situation, um, if you can let the initial flush of emotion pass through you and respond to that situation with calm and compassion, 
um, and just assume like, yeah, I'm going to keep getting things wrong. This is one of many things I'm going to get wrong for the rest of my life. Um, now you're in, you have the power to make that situation chill again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So don't, don't forget that in that moment, um, you have the power to, you have the, you have the power to chill it out. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Good, good advice. Yeah. I'll move on to something a little lighter, which is your work in video games. So you do board games, analog and digital. So you essentially do board games. And uh, a lot of different games. things. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite type of games are role-playing games. So Dungeons and Dragons kind of thing. Um, so uh, with, they have board and card game elements, um, but they're ultimately pretend games, you know, like kids on a playground pretending they're like Power Rangers or superheroes or something like that. Right. So this is, this is, the, uh, this is the quote unquote adult version of that. Although I, I often play with kids. Um, <laughs> done a lot of like professional uh professional dungeon mastering for uh for younger groups that doesn't um, sound like something should be done with kids <laughs> oh it's a lot of no, I'm and just, yet I'm somehow, kidding. I'm kidding. yeah come on, we've all seen we've all seen stranger things at this point it's all fun <laughs> until you summon a demon by accident but right <laughs> um so yeah so a lot of my work as a cultural consultant and as a as a writer and game designer has been in tabletop role-playing games um i also work in board games um in live action role-playing um and uh in video games okay what have you done what do you do for video games you when when you say editor or designer uh so i've I've mostly done uh, cultural consulting for video games so the same stuff that we've just been uh talking about so like if you've ever played like the jackbox party pack games i have um, not okay so it's a it's a series of comedy party games where you get your friends together and um uh, you play like comedy, uh, comedy games, which might, um, which might seem kind of familiar to you coming from an improv background. Um, uh, so there's like comedic prompts and you have to answer them in funny ways and people vote on like who was the funniest or whose idea they like the best. Um, but humor of course, uh, can, uh, get pretty offensive pretty quickly. Um, so that's a, uh, that's a particularly interesting, um, uh, I guess, application of my, my cultural consulting job. Like, um, how do we make sure that humor still hits and still works, but not in a way that like makes someone really upset? Because the last thing that you want uh, to happen on your like fun comedy party night is for like someone to suddenly start crying. Right. <laughs> kind of kills the mood. That make, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and then a lot of uh, a lot of the design and cultural consulting that I do for uh, tabletop role playing games is again stuff that you would uh, stuff that you would probably recognize uh, coming from an improv background. Okay, um, I got to try that then. This is, I, I love that type of stuff. Absolutely. There's a there's a game called Fiasco, um, really really popular with uh, with improv people. I've actually played this game live on stage uh, with improv folks. Okay. Um, yeah, once we even outnumbered the uh, once we the audience even outnumbered us, that almost never happened. But um, <laughs> there were more audience than players once. It was it was important night for us. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a uh, fiasco is a card based game that imitates uh, like Coen Brothers movies. Um, okay. uh, any any kind of a movie situation where you have a bunch of people with like powerful ambition and poor impulse control um, in a bad situation and. Um, unlike in games like Dungeons and Dragons, where you're trying to like succeed against fantasy monsters and so forth, um, in Fiasco, um, you're uh, a bunch of awful people and you're trying to take a bad situation and make it amusingly worse. Um, 
So um, that sounds uh, like fun. that sounds it, awesome. <laughs> it is a lot of fun. Um, so I worked as a as a cultural consultant on the second edition of Fiasco. Um, and it also comes with little play sets like, um, you know, on a cruise ship or in the Wild West or uh, in a small suburban town. Um, so I wrote a uh, um, I wrote a set of prompts uh, and scenarios for it um, that's based on um, uh, suburban American martial arts. Okay, so I'm looking up the game right now while you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, um, so my setting is kind of in the in the same genre of comedy as Cobra Kai or uh, uh, the Art of Self Defense. Um, a lot of farces um, having to do with like Americans practicing martial arts and attempting to reach great heights of uh, martial skill. Uh, while being kind of personal disasters themselves. <laughs> gotcha. I, I love Cobra Kai too. So. <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite shows. Oh, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, very cool. Well, I'm putting one of these fiascos uh, into my shopping cart right now on Amazon because I you think will, that would be tons of fun. You will love it. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you. Thank, thanks so much for being here again. It's James Mendez Hodes. And the website, check them out at jamesmendezhodes.com. That's James, M-E-N-D-E-Z-H-O-D-E-S.com. And we will post that below the podcast and below the videos. And um, really appreciate you being here today. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for having me. This was lots of fun. Yeah, this was great. So again, everyone out there, this was a Dweebs Global production, dweebsglobal.org. They give free mentorship help for people around the world, literally like every country, every language. We have somebody there to help you. It's completely confidential and completely free. Dweebsglobal.org. See you all next week.